Listen on as I read Romans chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. Romans chapter 10, verse 11. Hear God's word. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And let us pray together. Father, we thank you that your word is so clear. It's so inviting, if we could put it that way, to guilty sinners such as we to come and to call upon you and be saved. It really is as simple as that. We thank you that you publish this far and wide, even today. And we pray that we might have a heart to hear it and to receive it by faith. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have seen that the way of salvation, what we were looking at in the last two sermons, the way of salvation, the way that God saves sinners is the way of faith, not the righteousness of the law, which says do this and live, but the righteousness of faith, the word of faith that we preach. Paul says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the way of faith. The apostle in saying that was describing what faith is at the same time. He was saying, as we saw in those two sermons, and I quoted Calvin both times, it's the kind of thing uh, that Amanda doesn't just uh, agree with with the mind, but it settles deep in the heart. Or we could say it springs from the heart. You could describe it in either direction. It's either settling deep in the heart or having settled deep in the heart, it springs from the heart. And so having believed in the heart, confession is made with the mouth. That's the kind of faith that saves But having said that, and you'll notice how the argument is continually unfolding and it will continue to do so to the end of the chapter. He's equally interested in asserting that because that's what the gospel is, because that is the gospel way of salvation, namely the way of faith. It is therefore to be preached to all. It is to be freely offered to all. We call this and I entitled the sermon this the free offer of the gospel. The two hymns we've sung thus far and is equally the third hymn come from the section, the free offer of the gospel, the invitation, the summons to come unto Jesus and be saved. If that's what the gospel is, you see, Paul is saying the word of faith that we preach, the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. It's not for the Jews only. It's for everyone. And therefore, that's what we need to see. Therefore, it ought to be offered to everyone. That's the real thrust of the passage. Let me quote to you again. I I did this recently. Something that the, the Puritan John Preston said. He said, and hence it was that Jesus Christ himself said unto his disciples, Mark chapter 16, 15, go and preach the gospel to every creature Under heaven, that is, go and tell every man without exception that here is good news for him. Again, the good news for all that the good news is for all 
is the thrust and the burden of the verses before us. The word of faith that we preach is not for some. It's for everyone. It's for all. It's for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord. Now, a question that we might have, I think it's a fitting question. You might say, well, that's perfectly obvious. Why would anyone need to say that? Why would Paul need to stress that for three verses? Why would I need to preach a sermon stating that? Well, there's two answers to that question. The first is, obviously, if you think of the setting here, that of Jewish exclusivism. The Jews needed to be reminded that this being the way of salvation, salvation was not for the Jew only, but it was also for the Greek. And that's what we see the Apostle glorying in constantly in his epistles, whether in Ephesians or in Romans or uh, Colossians. But there are also the kinds of debates that have been uh, common in reform circles concerning both the nature of the gospel and how it is to be preached. And these are debates that not only have been going on for centuries, but which remain relevant to this day. The debate goes something like this. If God is sovereign in the salvation of sinners, Romans chapter 9, and if only the elect are going to be saved, how then is the gospel to be offered? Is it only to be offered to those who show good evidence that they are elect? Or is it really to be offered to all? Do you understand why the Reformed have debated the offer of the gospel in this way uh, for centuries? Given what we've just read, and, and, and I've preached in Romans chapter 9, the absolute sovereignty of God and salvation. He, he has mercy on whom he wills. He hardens whom he wills. How then is the gospel to be offered? There is obviously the danger. It's a danger that I've experienced. I think you've experienced it too, I'm sure. It's the danger of throwing our pearls before swine. We, don't, we have to be careful in these things. You, you offer the gospel over and over and over again. At a certain point, you realize the man isn't interested and you move on. We see the apostles doing this. We see Jesus doing this. But, but at the heart of this question is the very nature of the gospel itself. To whom? Is the gospel to be offered to whom is the gospel good news? Is it really good news for all or only for some? And the answer which I give. Is that it is good news for all. And that is the answer which the Apostle Paul is giving. It is what John Preston, the Puritan, said. That if it is good news for all, then you can really say to any man, whether he shows signs or evidence of being elect, here is good news for you. You can say that to anyone at all, and you ought to say it to anyone at all. You are able to say by the very nature of the gospel itself, here is good news for you. Christ is able to save you if only you will have him. And the question that we ought to ask ourselves as Reformed believers is whether we really believe that. Do you really believe that the gospel is good news for all? That you can say to any man at all, here is good news for you. Well, let us see how the apostle puts it here. And the first thing we need to see, as, as Paul points out here, is that scripture is clear on this point. In these 
three verses. Two of the verses are quotations of the Old Testament. He's saying this isn't something new. This is something old. He's been saying that all along in Romans. He's preaching to Jews, so he's preaching to us. He says, here's a scriptural idea. And the scriptural idea, which he quotes in verse uh, 11 and then again in verse 13, is that salvation is by faith, not by works. Salvation is a matter of believing, verse 11, or it's a matter of calling upon the Lord, verse 13, which is the same idea. It's a man uh, placing his faith in someone else, not in himself and his works, but upon the Lord as he offers salvation to him. That is the scriptural way of salvation. It's not the New Testament way. No, no, it's broader than that. It is the scriptural way of salvation. It is equally what you find in the Old Testament. Now, he needed to stress this because he was disputing Jews, obviously. He shows them how wrong they were about their own scriptures. Where did the Old Testament ever make salvation a matter of works? The answer is nowhere. It was always a matter of faith. It was always a matter of calling upon the Lord. And he shows that or proves that very easily by quoting the Old Testament prophets. But this also, this idea that this is the scriptural view of salvation or the scriptural way of salvation informs our view of scripture. Do we understand what we are saying? When we say that the Bible is God's word, it's God's word. Are we just saying that it was God's word long ago? God was speaking to men then and we're simply telling people today what he said then. Or do we really believe that in scripture today, God is still speaking so that I can say to you, even as Paul said to them, for the scripture says. In other words, God is saying he is saying this right now to you and you need to listen. This is God himself speaking to man. That's what scripture is. And what is God saying in the Bible? What do we mean when we say, uh, along with Paul, for, for the scripture says. What is the scripture saying? What is God saying? He's saying this. Here is how a man might be saved. God is publishing uh, from the earliest pages of the, New Test- of the Old Testament, rather. He is publishing good news for man. He's preaching the gospel to man, even to Adam and Eve. He was preaching the gospel to them and then to their children and to everyone who has ever had ears to hear since. He is publishing, if you like, I'm I'm going back to William Guthrie uh, in the Christian's great interest. He is publishing terms of peace. He's the great king and he's declaring to mankind that you might be pardoned freely by his grace. If only you will believe, if only you will call upon him, if only you will submit. You see, that's what the Jew wouldn't do. Paul said they would not submit to the righteousness of God, the righteousness of faith. They were rejecting the very salvation that God was offering them. But you see, this is not a merely New Testament idea. This is a scriptural idea. God is publishing, the great king is publishing terms of peace, his treaty to men. And he's asking men all along. He's always been asking men, will you assent to the terms of peace? Will you be at peace with me? That is ever the question that scripture puts to man. It says here is the way of salvation for sinners. Will you accept it? Will you accept the terms of peace? Will you consent to be saved in this way? Not by your works. Your works I reject, the Lord says, but freely as a gift by my grace. Will you accept 
salvation in this way. Do you hear the summons when Jesus begins his ministry? Repent and believe the gospel. Or listen to how Guthrie describes saving faith. The man who has faith is like this. He says to himself, I am pleased with the device of salvation by Christ. I agree to the terms. I welcome the offer of Christ and all his offices as king to rule over me, as priest to offer sacrifice and intercede for me, a prophet to teach me. I lay out my heart for him and toward him, resting on him as I am able. That is the picture of the sinner accepting and receiving these terms of peace in Jesus Christ. But the next thing. Having seen this as the scriptural idea, the next thing we need to see is that because this is the way of salvation held forth in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, the way that God himself provides for man and offers to man, it is sure, it is certain. In other words, man need not be in any doubt about it. Again, when this, when Paul says, for this scripture says, verse 11, he's not just enlisting the Old Testament to persuade the Jew. He's also reminding us that God himself is speaking here. God is saying to man, he is saying to you, here is my way of salvation. And because it is God who is offering this to you, it is sure and it is certain. If only you will accept it, if only you will take it. You needn't be in any trouble about it. You can rest easy knowing if you take this way and accept the offer, you will never be ashamed. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will never be ashamed. You will never be rejected by God. You see, that's the question the Jew was asking. That's the question you may have asked one day or even perhaps are asking now. What, can I be sure if I take this way that I will find what I am seeking? And the answer of scripture is you can be sure. Whoever believes in on him will not be put to shame. Quite the opposite is it is he who holds on to his works and who will not call upon the name of the Lord who will at last be put to shame on the last day. When God publishes this good news far and wide, he publishes it as his own word, as his, as his own offer, which makes it sure and certain. Listen to how Jesus puts it in uh, John chapter 6, verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me. There's Romans chapter 9, by the way. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. I will surely receive him as my own, Jesus says. I will surely save him. But then as a third point, because salvation is by faith, that means anyone may be saved. Anyone at all. Now, I've already said this, but let me say it again, because it's the main point of the passage. There is no one who can't be saved in this way. There is no one who is outside the, re the reach of grace. Not a single soul, however sinful, however vile, however naturally inclined to reject the gospel. Who might be saved by grace alone. If by grace he is made to see his need, he too can be saved. Think of the very man who is saying this, the Apostle Paul. Was there ever a man who was more naturally disposed to reject the gospel? Did anyone ever reject it as violently as him? 
And yet, look at what God made of him. Look at what happened when the power of God to save came to him. And you see, what dawned uh, on the apostle at that moment was not simply that it was amazing that he was saved. Now, that was amazing. And that's the realization that we all have had when we've been saved. But it was equally that anyone could be saved. If I might be saved, then anyone can be saved. Do you understand why it was he of all people that God made an apostle to the Gentiles? There are no exceptions whatsoever. No one is too bad to be saved if only he has faith in the gospel. Do you see that the apostle is here making a universal statement about the gospel? Anyone at all, whoever. But at the same time, he's also saying something radically exclusive. For we could equally say, and we ought to equally say, that no one can be saved. No one will be saved, however righteous, however good. Unless he call upon the name of the Lord out of a sense of desperate need for his salvation. You think of the Jews when Peter preached to them and they cried out, what must we do to be saved? That's a picture of what Paul is describing here. Men who once thought they were righteous and he rejected the gospel and they were uh, they were made to see their need and they cried out. That is a picture of what Paul is describing here. But there's no other way for sinners to be saved. I I would even say, humanly speaking, there's no other way for a righteous man to be saved. It's the only way. And so we could also say this. The language is important to notice. In both verse 11 and verse 13. Twice it is put this way, quoting the, the prophets of the Old Testament. The word is used, whoever. Verse 11, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Verse 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. John chapter 3, verse 16, the favorite verse of many. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting love. Do, life. Do we appreciate, beloved, the, the, the force of the word whoever? We as reformed believers, we believe in election. We believe in God's sovereignty. But do we appreciate the Whoever. That is the way of the gospel. It's how it's to be preached. It's how, it to be, uh, how it's to be offered. Again, you see, that's the question we're asking ourselves. Not simply what it is, but how it is to be offered and to whom. It's to be offered like this. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, which is Jesus, by the way, shall be saved. He shall surely be saved. Just as surely as the gospel was offered to him by God himself. And so he may be sure that he has what he seeks. That's the way to offer the gospel to sinners for it's God's method. And there should be no reluctance on our part to do so. Certainly not on the part of gospel ministers. Here is the minister's charge. charge. He is to preach and to offer the gospel to anyone who will listen to him. With no exception. But do you see the danger here? It's the danger we all fall into. The danger is to say there's no use preaching to that person. Or there's no use in preaching to those people. That's the danger. It's a a first century error. Well, it's equally a 21st century error. It's an error that any man can fall into at any time. The question that we ought to ask ourselves is how do we know? How do we know that a man is outside The reach of grace. How do we know that he is not inclined to listen to the gospel? 
the gospel was powerful enough to save you, can it not save others? You see, that is what I'm saying ought to dawn on you. The nature of the gospel is the power to save. Well, it saved me. That means it can save anyone. And, t- and until you realize that, you still don't have the gospel right. You haven't realized what it is. Do you remember what Paul says at the beginning of Romans chapter 1? He not only says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to save both the Jew and the Greek, or the Jew first and also the Greek. But before that, he says, in, in verse uh, 14, he says, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. And then he says, I'm not ashamed of it because I know what it is. I know what it can do. You see, he's saying not only that I know what it can do, but I'm obliged to tell you. Because it might save you even as it saved me. I know it's power to save anyone at all. Does that mean it will save everyone? You see, sometimes people go too far with this idea. They run, they run too far with Romans chapter 10. They lose sight of Romans chapter 9. Does that mean that God will save everyone? Obviously not. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He will harden whom he will harden. He will prepare for himself uh, vessels fitted for wrath, even as he will prepare for himself vessels fitted for mercy. No, the gospel will not save everyone. But that is a matter of God's sovereignty. From the standpoint of its offer, the gospel being offered from sinners to sinners, the conviction that ought to be formed in our heart is that it can save everyone. Not that it will save everyone, but that it can save anyone because of its very nature. And if we do not understand and offer the gospel like that, you see, in reality, I'm preaching to myself here more than anyone else. But if I do not understand and preach the gospel like that, then I have fundamentally misunderstood it and I have skewed its nature to you. The gospel is good news for all. But then as a fourth point, here is the next thing which Paul makes explicit. It's implicit. We ought to to easily be able to see what he's saying. But in verse 12, he tells us. It is this universal gospel offer that proves ultimately that there is no difference between Jew and Greek. He says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, that is to say Jew and Gentile, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. That is, as concerns salvation. He's not saying there's no, I'll come back to this, but he's not saying, obviously, there's no difference between a Jew and a Greek. There is. That isn't his point. He didn't need to elaborate on that any more than I do. But he says, as concerns the gospel offer of salvation, there's no difference whatsoever. You see, a Jew might be saved in this way. And he can't be saved in any other way. But the same is true of the Greek in just the same way. There's no other way for him to be saved except believing on him. In the matter of salvation, nationality does not come in at all. This is the Jewish fallacy. The only question is not where was he from? Was he a Jew? Was he a Greek? Was he an American? None of that matters. The only question that matters in the matter of salvation is this. Did he believe? Does he have faith? Is he a Christian? Did he call upon the name of Jesus? 
whatever he was and whatever he is. Oh, there's no distinction, Paul says, no real difference at all. He glories in this so often. It's, it, it's a common refrain in his epistles. What he says in verse 12 is what you'll find him saying in nearly all of his letters. There's no difference between the Jew and the Greek, the, the, the slave and the free, the man and the woman. The Jew is no more likely to be saved than the Greek. The man no more likely than the woman, the the free no more likely than the slave. To suggest this, to even think it for a moment, is to misunderstand what the gospel is. Equally, I said one class is no more likely to be saved. Well, let me put it in the other way. The other class is no less likely to be saved. The Greek is no less likely to be saved. The woman, the slave. All men stand on equal footing. Their need for the gospel is exactly the same, which is uh, what the beginning of the book of Romans sets out to prove. Chapters one through three, that there is in reality no difference between the Jew and the Greek, the Jew and the Gentile, that all mankind alike is guilty before God under his holy law, having broken it and having seen that very clearly. That the law is speaking to man and it's not telling him that. He might be saved, but it's telling him rather the opposite, that he's damned, that he's condemned. But it's to just that sort of person, whether he's a Jew or a Greek or whatever, that you can come around and say, yes, listen to me. Here's good news for you. Whatever you are, whatever is true of you here is good news for you. Guilty sinner. If you will but call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Again, let me say, the apostle is not claiming these categories cease to exist. That the Jew who is saved ceases to be a Jew. The the Greek ceases to be a Jew, uh, a Greek, I mean. Uh, Do you remember what Paul says at the beginning of Romans chapter 9? He's longing for his kinsmen according to the flesh. He's still speaking as a Jew, even as a Christian. But here is the point. As concerns salvation, how a man is saved... These things do not come in at all. In fact, what Paul is saying at the beginning of Romans chapter 9 is that his heart for the Jews is that they might become his real brothers in Christ. That they might be saved even as the Gentiles were being saved. It is in this sense that there is no distinction, he says. Ethnicity, nationality, race, gender, all of these things make no distinction difference whatsoever and to think that they do is to misunderstand what god is offering in the gospel let me say it again it's not salvation for some but salvation for all throw out your categories throw out your distinctions this is good news for any and for all and so then this means practically thinking about it from the standpoint of the first century this means that anyone can be saved from any nation and the gospel is to be preached To all nations. Obviously we know that. What I am describing. And I hope to describe this more in the following sermon. Is the warrant for missions. But do we understand why it is. That we are to preach to all nations. The answer is. Because of what the gospel is. It is good news for all. But equally this means. That no man is saved. Because he belongs to a particular nation. That was the fallacy of the Jews or the fallacy of those who have lived at times in times where uh, it was commonly believed that the land was Christian. 
This is something uh, Joseph uh, Tracy talks about in his history of the of the first great awakening. He said, here's here's the fallacy of those who grew up in Christian lands. He says something like that. So he doesn't say Christian nation. He says Christian lands. He says this. There was a spirit of Christianity spreading far and wide. But here was the fallacy. Leading up to the time of the first great awakening and the second great awakening, it was the fallacy that men and women assumed because they lived in a Christian land in which the spirit of Christianity generally prevailed. Therefore, they were Christian. I was born in a Christian land. Therefore, I am a Christian. You see, that's the fallacy. That's the danger. And it was a common danger in those days leading up to the first great awakening. That's why God raised up uh, preachers such as Gilbert Tennant and and George Whitfield to preach the message. You must be born again. You see, you can preach that. Uh, You can preach that anywhere. You ought to preach that anywhere. Because people thought that there was, in their case, no need for a saving change. No need, as the Puritans would say, for the soul to close with Christ. Do you see that is the same fallacy The same error that can be true of being born in what is called a Christian family, being born to Christian parents. I go to church. I've never known anything different. I'm a Christian. Well, perhaps you are. But are you clear what it is that makes a man a Christian? It is not the nation that he belongs to. It is not the family that he belongs to, who his parents are. It's only this. This is the only thing that matters. Has he called upon the name of the Lord? Has he believed on him? That's what makes a man a Christian. Has he done so himself? Not who his his nation was, not who his parents are, but I, I believe these things. That's the real force of the whoever, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, whoever believes on him. That's the question every man must ask himself. He must ask himself. Every every child in this church. Have I done so? Have I called upon the name of the Lord? Have I seen my need for salvation and cried out to him? What must I do to be saved and found in Jesus? One who was ready to save me. Have I closed with Christ? Again, to use the language of Guthrie. I'm pleased with the device of salvation by Christ. I agree to the terms. I welcome the offer of Christ. Or as he says in another place. He says, if you have, you might know it. A man might know if he has. There's really no mystery here. Saving faith is discernible. By its very nature, as it is justifying, it is discernible and may be known. A man may clearly know if from known distress in himself upon the report and fame of Christ's fullness, his heart is pleased with God's device in the new covenant. If it goes after Christ in that discovery and approves him as Lord of the life of men, terminating and resting there and nowhere else. This is a discernible thing. Therefore, I call upon men impartially to examine themselves. And if they find that their heart has closed so with that device of salvation and is gone out after him as precious, that thereby they conclude a sure and true interest in Jesus Christ. But let me say this lastly. What is it that makes this certain? That whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved.
What is our warrant for believing this? Aside from the fact that God has said it. For the scripture says, verse 11. Aside from that, though that ought to have been enough. Paul goes on in verse 12. There's no distinction for the same Lord is over all. That's the first thing. There's two things. And that's the first. You see, he's not the God of the Jews only. You've got to stop thinking in those categories. Paul is saying to the first century Christian people. He's the God of all. He's the God of Moses. So he's the God of the Greek. He's the God of all. And that is the ultimate mistake. It is to think God is only interested in one sort of person. No, the gospel tells us. And, I, and I, again, I just wonder how comfortable we are in putting it this way. The gospel tells us of God's concern for humanity as lost. Humanity. Mankind lost in sin. Mankind in Adam. Not in Christ. God's concern for him, generally speaking. Why? Well, here's why. Because he's the Lord of all. He is the Lord of the whole creation. And his heart goes out to man in his perishing and lost estate. Can we honestly say that he is not the Lord of all? And if he is, do we have any trouble admitting him the right to accept and redeem any one of his creatures? If he but come unto him for salvation. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. The Lord overall is rich to all who call upon him. Do we appreciate what the apostle is saying here? Look at this word rich. We've seen it already in chapter 9 verse 23. That he might make known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy. So here the Lord overall is rich to all who call upon him. He's rich, Paul is saying. There's a fullness in him which he's ready to give. Listen to how John puts it in John chapter 1, verse 16. And of his fullness we have all received in grace for grace. There is a fullness that resides in him that he is ready to give to all. To any who call on him. Grace for grace. And in this there is no distinction. Here God stands ready to receive sinners. Ready to bless them richly and abundantly in his son. There is no distinction. So there is no reluctance in his heart to do so. How richly he will bless those who call upon him. With the gift of salvation. Which is an abundant gift of grace. And he isn't just there waiting. I would go further than that. Anticipating uh, the next verses. His heart goes out to man. He sends out messengers as we, as we will see. To preach and to publish the good news far and wide. Verses 14 and 15. You see again. Paul is telling us. He's saying something about what salvation is. He's saying salvation is not something meager. It's not something small. It's not something which perhaps some will receive in rich measure. Oh, but others, they only get a little. No, you insult God when you think this. He isn't greedy with his grace. He's rich in giving it. There is in him a fullness which he is ready to give if we but ask. And because he's so rich... Because he's so generous, well, he can save anyone at all. There is no limitation on the side of God. 
And so this is how you should view the offer of salvation. What exactly the gospel is. The good news that uh, the messengers of the gospel are preaching. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. Who bring glad tidings of good things. You see, that's what they're saying. That's what they're offering to any and to all. They are saying, here is a man who is poor, who became rich by the grace of God. As the apostle says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. That's the good news that the messengers of the gospel are preaching the riches of God's mercy given to man freely as a gift. And how did man, after all, come into such riches, seeing that he was poor, merely by receiving them as a gift, merely by hearing and obeying and receiving the summons and the offer to come and be saved? And did God, on the side of God, did God ever show any reluctance to save any who called upon him. Did he ever say this one? Oh, I'm not so sure about this one. No, he never did and he never will. He is rich to all who call upon him. For he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Do you see in this a God who is beggarly or who is greedy or one who is rich? Or let me try to put it in these terms. God is quick to save. He doesn't wait. He doesn't say to the man who calls upon him, you know, I think I have to think about it. Wait here a while. No. He says, come unto me and you will be saved. The moment that you come, you are saved. Why? Because he's rich. He's ready. He's eager to save. His heart is full of love and pity and tender compassion to poor lost sinners. And how ready he is to save them. If only they but call upon him. Why is he able to save anybody? Because he's Lord of all. Oh, but is he willing? Yes, he's willing because he's rich to all who call upon him. Do you say to me, Pastor, that was the most Arminian sermon I've ever heard from this pulpit. Well, I come back to this. Do you see why reformed people are sometimes given to arguing over these points? And they have been for many years. How is the gospel to be offered and to whom? And after all, by the way, what is the gospel exactly? What is the glad tidings of good news? Well, anyone who doubts what I say, I would ask you to read John Murray's little booklet, which I will give to you, The Free Offer of the Gospel. Or to read uh, Sinclair Ferguson's The Whole Christ, which is really just a summary of that debate that happened in Scotland so many centuries ago. And you will see that all that I say stands within the Reformed tradition. And so here is the gospel. To use the language of Thomas Boston again, this is the good old way of discovering to sinners their warrant to believe in Christ. And it is for them to see, it is for you to see, that Christ is offered to all, even to you. Here is good news for you, because it is good news for all. And I ask you again, whether old or young, have you discovered that way for yourself? 
Have you called upon the name of the Lord? Have you believed on him for salvation? Do you, to use the language of William Guthrie, do you rejoice? Do you delight? Do you consent in the good news? Do you consent to be saved in this way? Not as one who is righteous, but one who is utterly lost and perishing in sin, saved solely by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Yes, have you seen this as well, that there is in Christ a fullness that he is ready to give. Grace upon grace, an abundance of grace, enough, more than enough to meet your need. Yes, and the Spirit says to the bride, come, and let him who hears says, say, come, and let him who thirsts come, whoever desires, let him take of the water freely. That's how the Bible closes, you know. Romans, or Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. This is what our Lord Jesus says at the end of the Bible. The Bible ends with an invitation to sinners who thirst to come and to drink and to be satisfied and to be saved. Amen. And let us come to the table together.